0: Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquat paz In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Paul Greengard, professor of molecular and cellular neuroscience at Rockefeller University, talks about his life and career with his former student, Eric Nessler, Professor and Chair of Neuroscience at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Dr. Greengaard won the 2000 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work on the signaling pathways in the nervous system. He and his colleagues showed nerve cells communicate through either fast or slow synaptic transmission. Dr. Greengaard discusses their discoveries and the resistance and skepticism they faced when they published the results.
1: I'm Eric Nessler. I'm at uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and it's my great honor to be here today to interview Dr. Paul Greengard. We're sitting in Paul's office at the Rockefeller University. I had the privilege of being a graduate student in Paul's lab in the late 1970s and early 1980s, so it's particularly fun to be here today. Uh, Paul, thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you, Eric. I thought we'd start by talking about the contributions that your laboratory has made to the field of neuropharmacology and start with the early days when your lab started looking at the role of cyclic nucleotides in the brain, what prompted you to take that focus?
2: Uh, what prompted that was the discovery by Earl Sutherland and his colleagues that the hormones uh, norepinephrine and glucagon raise the level of psychic AMP in liver and muscle cells, mm-hmm. and the thought occurred to me that maybe nerve cells communicate with each other in a manner similar to that by which the hormones Mm -hmm. communicated from a sending cell to a receiving cell. Despite the difference that the hormones are working over a matter of in some cases feet. Mm -hmm. And these things are through millions of a centimeter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember having that thought many years before I did anything about it. I was doing my uh, postdoctoral studies, and then I was in industry for uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: nine years, pharmaceutical industry. So when I got the first thing I did when I went to Yale was to see whether neurotransmitters might raise Psyche-AMP and we found that uh, there's several: dopamine sensitive adenylate cyclase, octopamine sensitive dental cyclase, serotonin sensitive dental cyclase, mm-hmm. and, and it was clear then that the principal that the endocrine system had evolved was also true for synaptic communication across a tiny synapse.
1: Mm -hmm. And then you also took analogies from the earlier studies in endocrinology to pursue how it was that cyclic nucleotides then produce their functional effects in nerve cells uh, with the discovery of protein kinases in the brain.
2: Right. that became clear many years after the Sutherland discoveries when, as a paper by Wallace, Perkins, and Krebs, showed that the Psyche-AMP works through an enzyme which at the time was called phosphorylase kinase kinase, and the name was then changed to Psyche-AMP kinase. Mm-hmm. And I wondered whether the same thing might happen in the brain, that there was a kinase involved in mediating the actions of neurotransmitters. And so we looked for such... Uh, such an enzyme in the brain and we found it was present in much higher concentrations than anywhere else and in addition it was associated with the plasma membrane so everything was in the right positions to make that a viable hypothesis that protein kinase mediated the actions of neurotransmitters and uh, the argument about whether psychotherapy was important was finally resolved, uh, we published two papers back-to-back in PNES, mm-hmm. one with Felix Strumwasser at Caltech, and the other one with Eric Kandel at Columbia, in which we showed that injecting the catalytic subunit of P dependent protein into nerve cells mimic the effect of the
1: neurotransmitters, so that was pretty definitive evidence. Mm-hmm. I was in your lab at the time that those studies were published, you were? and I remember Uh, being struck by the reaction of the field to your lab's proposal that cyclic AMP and cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase are important in regulating neural phenomena. There was a lot of skepticism. Would you like to uh, talk about that?
2: The peak of the skepticism came when I gave a lecture in front of a very large audience, and after I finished my talk, somebody got up and said, this is absolutely heretical thinking and should not be allowed. I thought that was a little bit excessive, but that that was the bottom. But then gradually people began to accept it. I think...
1: Was there a turning point, you think, that, um, or was it just more of a gradual process?
2: I think it was a gradual thing. There was good news and bad news about people not accepting this. That the good news was then I didn't have any competition for 15 years from the late, 80, late 60s to the early 80s. Uh, the bad news is, was I was sort of unpopular conceptually in the field.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But the good news outweighed the bad news so we were able to develop this story incrementally but over, over that 15 years the evidence became overwhelming and mm-hmm. it was hard any longer to deny it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Ironically, the first place we showed... The most compelling evidence that neurotransmitters could work through these pathways, we were were looking at nucleated erythrocytes, bird, BIRD erythrocytes, and were able to show that when the neurotransmitter, I believe it was norepinephrine, I'm not sure, activated its target cell, there was an increase in psych amp in those cells, and the psych amp could produce the effect on the ion channel. Could mimic the neurotransmitter producing mm-hmm. that that was pretty compelling, and then we went on to show the same thing in nerve cells mm-hmm. It was, it was a gradual build up, and then we were looking for substrates for this pathway, and mm-hmm. found a few of those and mm-hmm. found other kinases so increasingly the evidence became stronger
1: and stronger mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you about those other kinases because <clears throat> I remember that being part of the process by which your lab established an important role for protein phosphorylation. Mm-hmm. After the finding of cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase in the brain at high levels, I believe your lab went on to discover cyclic GMP-dependent protein kinase?
2: That's correct. The way we found that, I wanted to purify the cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase. So you put this extract over a column, Mm -hmm. and we got our two peaks. And at that point, people had gotten very interested in other cyclic nucleotides, cyclic AMP, cyclic GMP, all all the nucleotides. Mm -hmm. And so we had the second peak, and so we compared the two peaks and found that cyclic AMP activated the kinase activity of the first peak, and psychic GMP activated the activity of the second peak. And then we, by dissecting that system, realized it was a totally different protein kinase regulated by psychic GMP and not psychic AMP. Now, that too became a controversial issue. It's interesting in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Some of the people down at Vanderbilt who have been fellow students, if you will, of uh, Earl Sutherland, were, uh, really didn't like this. They said this is some, mute, some uh, denatured form of psychic AMP-dependent kindness, mm-hmm. which now is psychic GMP-dependent kinase as the activator, not psychic AMP as the activator. So mm-hmm. it was interesting.
1: Absolutely. And then shortly thereafter, your lab Discovered what has come to be called uh, calcium calmodulin-dependent protein kinase two, among other calcium kinases, and And, n one, yeah. Yeah. it was very similar. And three, I believe, perhaps, right? Yeah.
2: We didn't have three. Okay. That came later, but it was the same thing. We knew there was calcium-dependent protein phosphorylation, Mm -hmm. so we wanted to see how that was happening. And what we did is we ran an extract over a column, and found there were two peaks of. Calcium-dependent kinase activity present, and the one we call calcium-dependent protein, what, we changed the name later to calcium-calmodulin-dependent protein kinase one, and calcium-calmodulin-dependent protein kinase two. Today we know that CAM kinase two, as it's abbreviated, is much more important. It's an important component of the postsynaptic density, and it plays a vital role in synaptic transmission.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for students who grow up in biomedical science today who by second nature know that protein phosphorylation mediates so many different neural phenomena to think back not that long ago really thirty or so years ago remember you published a paper in a review in science in 78 where I believe one of the first times you proposed a diversity of kinases with mediating a diversity of types of signals on many types of neural phenomena. Right. Um, and now the human genome uh, sequencing has indicated there's about 500 or so protein kinases. So I don't know if you want to yeah. comment on that perspective. Yeah.
2: But there's now over a thousand tyrosine protein kinases, which is one subclass. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence accumulated not only in our lab but in many other laboratories. And, and now with the modern molecular biology we can knock out genes or mutate them and so on and you know the evidence has became incontrovertible and now as you say it is second nature to people
1: I mean it really has transformed I think the way young people approach a biological question because protein phosphorylation is almost a reflex right. in terms of a mechanism that's pursued
2: yeah now that's what's come a long way from the see at the time we started this work it was accepted that Chemicals. The the, the way nerve cells communicate with 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 each other was through neurotransmitter release, diffusion to the postsynaptic membrane to activate receptors, which at the time were hypothetical when we started this, and that was a battle that was, went on for forty years, mm-hmm. and it was won pretty resoundingly by the chemical school, A very distinguished scientists such as Eccles who a long time to accept it. Mm-hmm. He believed in the electrical transmission, which is perfectly logical. The idea was that when the nerve impulse came down to the ending, there was an electrical field generated by the nerve impulse, which changed the membrane potential across the postsynaptic membrane mm-hmm. and initiated or inhibited a postsynaptic response. Mm-hmm. But as I said, the debate was one rather resounding by the chemical school. It was about this time we started our work. and. And at that time, people believed, okay, it's a chemical, but it's an electrical response to an opening of a voltage-gated ion channel, which initiated the signal going down the postsynaptic cell. And there was reason to believe this. The things that did that were, for example, acetylcholine action receptors mm-hmm. opened up ion channels. Those studies were perfectly compatible with what was known at the time. With the idea that all that was involved was an elect- a change in ion conductivity across the membrane and therefore an inhibitory or an excitatory postsynaptic potential. But again, as we discussed earlier, I thought it might be more complex and it might be somewhat like the hormones, and that turned out to be the case. You can say both ideas were correct. You can think of that electrical signal as being how the FEST excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate Mm -hmm. and the fast inhibitory uh, neurotransmitter GABA produce their effects Mm -hmm. but then there are over a hundred probably many many more uh, neurotransmitter pathways which work through these very complicated signal transduction cascades involving changing the level of second messenger activation of a protein kinase or a protein phosphatase changing the phosphorylation of a key substrate protein at the production of a physiological response.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. You alluded to earlier, Paul, that the next step after identifying protein kinases was to find the substrate proteins through which the protein kinases work to produce their functional effects. uh, let's talk a bit about the first substrates that your lab uh, discovered in the brain, uh, which uh, was a protein that I was involved in. We called it protein 1 at the time. Maybe right. you can tell us about protein 1.
2: Sure. So uh, after we would established that the neurotransmitters worked through changing the level of a second messenger and the second messenger worked through activating protein kinases or protein phosphatases, the next question came: What are the substrates for the kinases and phosphatases? And those days, they had just developed these very primitive techniques for doing running gels and doing Western blotting, and or, and doing radioact- radio determination, radioactivity on the on the gel. And what we did was we looked for uh, we used radioactive ATP and looked for substrates that might be radioactive. And then we found this protein, which we called synapsin-1, with two of them, synapsin-1 and synapsin, excuse me, protein-1 and protein-2. And it turned out, as we learned more about protein-1 and, and purified it, that protein-1 was associated with the nerve terminal, and as we subsequently learned, it, it, it coats all synaptic vesicles and regulates neurotransmitter release in a very profound and dramatic way. So that was synapsin-1 and synapsin-2, and the reason, in retrospect, that we found them first was they're basically present on all on all synaptic vesicles in all nerve terminals in the mm-hmm. brain. And so they're enormously uh, abundant. And so with the primitive techniques that were available at that time, they were the first ones we saw because they were the most abundant.
1: Right. And in fact, the discovery of synapsin, I think, and demonstrating its concentration in nerve terminals and its role in neurotransmitter release was very important in stimulating the field to elaborate a biochemical process of neurotransmitter release, which had before that discovery remained completely opaque.
2: Right. So, yeah, that's true. Once we found out that, that, this, that this protein one was synapsin and one which got phosphorylated, then we compared what synapsin-1 in the phosphorylated form did compared to the dephosphorylated form. And what we found was that the dephosphorylated form of synapsin-1 inhibited the vesicles from fusing to the plasma membrane and releasing the neurotransmitter. The phosphorylated form did not do that. So by phosphorylating, you removed this inhibitory uh, effect and allowed an increase in neurotransmitter release. and it turned out that there are these two uh, classes of synapses, which even to this date, is not quite understood why they're, because it's synapses 1A, synapse 1B, 2A and 2B. It's not quite clear why one needs so many of these synapses to do what the nerve cell does, because by and large the ratios are pretty much the same mm. amongst all different nerve terminals.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Evar Wallace and Angus Nairn, to postdoctoral in the laboratory, took on the project, the following project. We knew that synapsin-1 was present in every nerve cell in the brain. We asked whether there might be certain fossil proteins, phosphorylated proteins, which present in certain regions of the brain and not in others because the brain is so, so heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. I have to say that also in retrospect, it's this discovery of these fossil proteins. These signaling pathways that provide un- provide overwhelming proof for the heterogeneity of different nerve cells. Like when I started out, it was like a nerve cell, is a nerve cell, mm-hmm. a nerve cell. Despite the fact that Ramon y had shown these hundreds of different types, mm-hmm. anatomically, what our work did was to show there are hundreds of different types biochemically. Mm-hmm. So it did help in that in that uh, regard
1: another substrate that your lab discovered a number of years ago that remained a major focus for a while was darp 32. Right. uh... would you describe for us what led your lab to discover that protein so we were looking for region specific
2: phosphoproteins, and we found that when we took the, the uh, neostridium we found a whole bunch of these different phosphoprotein bands which you didn't see for example, in the cortex, the, re- the explanation for that retrospectively was that the striatum is very homogeneous mm-hmm. compared to the cortex. The mm-hmm. cortex has a lot of different cell types. The striatum has basically these two major classes of what are called medium spiny projection neurons. In the cortex, there are all these cell types, and therefore all these different fossil proteins, which didn't stand out. In the striatum, there's two cell types, basically. It stand out, and they these cell these two cell types, which are very similar in many respects, have a large amount of this one phosphoprotein type, and we we're able to see it because of the homogeneity. Mm-hmm. It wasn't diluted by lots of other things. Mm-hmm. And the darp 32 <clears throat> turned out to be very important in dopamine signaling.
1: Mm-hmm. Hence its name.
2: Yeah, the darp 32 is an acronym for dopamine. Psych AMP dependent or psych-AMP, dopamine, dopamine psych AMP regulated phosphoprotein of thirty two thousand mm-hmm. molecular weight,
1: and more recently, your lab had shown that uh, the protein's role is far broader than simply mediating the effects of dopamine.
2: Yes, the reason we focused on the dopamine initially is when we found this molecule selectively in the striatum, we thought maybe. It was found by looking for psychanal p-dependent protein kinase substrates. Because dopamine was such a prominent neurotransmitter there, we then showed that dopamine regulated it. And given the clinical importance of dopamine in many psychiatric diseases, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, ADHD, Mm -hmm. uh, we we studied the dopamine system a lot. The other reason for focusing on the dopamine system for a decade or more (coughs) actually two decades, was that the concentration of Darb 32 in these principal cell types in the striatum was enormously higher than in the rest of the brain. So mm-hmm. if you did immunoperoxidase staining, the stridum was black and the rest of the brain was hardly labeled. It turned out that this tiny amount of Darb 32 in the cortex, for example, which is vital for those cells in the cortex as it is for the stratum. And the reason why it's, even though it's present in tiny, tiny concentrations, the reason it's effective in the rest of the brain is because DARP 32 is an incredibly powerful uh, molecule in its phosphorylated form. It inhibits protein phosphatase one, uh, the major serine threonine phosphidase in the brain Mm -hmm. at 10 to minus 10th molar which Mm. means a trace amount of DARP32 can fully inhibit this vital enzyme, the Mm -hmm. protein phosphatase.
1: And thereby control the state of phosphorylation Mm. of hundreds of other proteins. Right, right. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting historical findings, I think, was the observation that several of these substrates, like synapsin, like DARP32, are phosphorylated by several kinases at either the same or different sites. And at the time, I think, it revealed a completely new level of molecular convergence of regulation. And I yeah. want to talk about the implications of that, perhaps.
2: Yeah. Okay, so it's true. We, we found, each one had its own story, but we found several phosphorylation sites for different kinase. There were four major ones, and now we know three minor ones, which we've barely begun to mine. But the four major ones...
1: This is on dark 32
2: On dark 32 and we found that these four major phosphorylation sites on DARP32 they were phosphorylated by different protein kinases in response to different neurotransmitters. Mm. So it became clear that this is a way of these different neurotransmitter pathways interacting in the DARP32-containing cells. And one of the ways they interact is very simple. When one of these... The, the, the psychi-NP site, the dopamine psychi-NP site, is a residue called 3 and 34 mm-hmm. And when that is phosphorylated, you've got this very potent inhibitor, protein phosphatase 1. Mm-hmm. The other three sites were phosphorylated. The consequence of phosphorylation on those other sites was to affect the uh, efficiency of either phosphorylation or dephosphorylation of this 3 and 34 mm-hmm. So that the other neurotransmitters are now modulating the dopamine signaling pathway. Through this complicated intramolecular mm-hmm. uh, interaction in the dark 32 molecule.
1: Yeah, leading to very complicated modes of cellular regulation.
2: Right. It's just
1: a fascinating story how these uh, biochemical networks of information control have evolved.
2: Yes. So it, it turns out that this is the major, a major mechanism, not the major mechanism by which these newer, different neurotransmitter pathways interact with each other. So you've got this convergence of all the signaling onto a single molecule, the DARP32, through the neurotransmitter receptors, second messengers, kinases, onto DARP32. And the dark 32 in turn, by regulating the activity of protein phosphatase 1, controls the state of phosphorylation of virtually every downstream protein, mm-hmm. all the effector proteins. Mm-hmm. Remarkably, there's hardly a protein in the brain that exists that is not regulated by protein phosphatase 1.
3: Mm-hmm. So,
2: that's, so you have this convergence onto the dark 32 and then it diverges going out from that. Interesting, we found another molecule recently which uh, plays the same role for calcium that the dark 32 plays for cycium mm-hmm. B. and that's a molecule we call a regulator of calmodulin signaling. And that also in- integrates a whole bunch of stuff and interacts with a bunch of stuff that goes through the site mm-hmm.
1: People might know that as RCS protein. Re-
2: Regulatory telomodulacine yeah. RCS.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It was also, we found that in the same original studies that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. when we were looking for substrates for site KMP-dependent there might be region-specific. We found these several bands on a gel, I mentioned that earlier, Mm -hmm. had several molecules, about six of them, were very interesting. We were so consumed with the ARP32 for 15 years that we didn't go to these, and then we turned to those others and found another one of these. It was ARP21 or DARP21. And that was regulated by the calcium pathway. And interesting, this RCS or uh, ARP21 Controls the state of dephosphorylation. One of the residues on DARP thirty two, so hmm. it's a regulator of this master regulator molecule. Hmm. It's a way of it was one of the mechanisms by which the calcium signaling pathway controls the AMP signaling pathway. Mm-hmm.
1: Paul, let's turn to the focus of your lab in more recent years, uh, when you ha- when a major uh, interest of the group has been Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Maybe you can describe a little bit about what drew you to focus on Alzheimer's disease, and in particular talk about your recent discovery of a major protein that controls amyloid uh, deposition in the brain.
2: Right. So I mentioned a few minutes ago, because of this vastly increased amount of information we had about signal transduction pathways, uh, I thought it might be possible to understand molecular basis for various neurological and psychiatric disorders, such as depression, uh, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. and to try to get insight into the mechanism by which the drugs that are used to treat those disorders achieve their effects. With regard to your specific question about Alzheimer's, it was known that beta amyloid Uh, was made in in the brain by converting a molecule called the amyloid precursor protein into an intermediate amyloid precursor protein C-terminal fragment, and that was then converted to beta amyloid. These are two steps requiring two enzymes known as beta secretase Mm -hmm. and gamma secretase. Mm -hmm. So we were able taking cell line into a cells to permeabilize them and show that we could still make beta-amyloid in these broken cell preparations. But that was exciting because we could now start controlling Mm and characterizing the enzymes. So we now had these broken cell preparations. We found that they could make the Mm beta-amyloid in this two-step cascade. We were then able to dialyze all the interior of the cell out and show you lost the ability to make Mm beta-amyloid. If you added back ATP, adenosine triphosphate, We were able to accelerate the conversion of the APP, the amyloid precursor protein, to beta amyloid. We then showed that was due to the second step, the gamma secretase. And then we kind of left that on the shelf for uh, several years. And then a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, Bill Nesser picked up the gauntlet on this and wanted to see what the ATP is working on. And so the way this project was approached was to uh, take drugs which are known to work by competing with ATP at binding sites. This is mainly these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which Mm -hmm. are used very extensively now in developing anti-cancer drugs. Mm -hmm. And one of them, Gleevec or imatinib, which is made up by Novartis and is now used to treat people uh, with chronic myelogenous leukemia, Mm -hmm. The, this galivac was able to prevent the ability of ATP, mm. adenosine triphosphate, to catalyze the conversion of the APP, the amyloid precursor protein, to beta amyloid. We published that. I was uh, a bit concerned about it, but these younger people have to get their papers out. I was concerned about it because I thought once we showed this, that this galivac could block the formation of beta amyloid, that the whole pharmaceutical industry would. Mm-hmm. all come in and they didn't. Part of the reason for that was one pharmaceutical company published a couple of papers saying this was an artifact which we knew what it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But it bought us time. It kept other people from mudding the subject. Mm-hmm. And so we went on with this and we were able to show that the Glevic band to a protein which we today call Gamma Secretase Activating Protein or abbreviated GSAP
3: mm-hmm.
2: an acronym what happens is, that, as, it, as it turned out, that the this GSAP, or gamma secretase activating protein, binds to the C-terminal fragment of the APP molecule. It then forms a ternary complex of the gamma secretase, so you have the enzyme, the substrate, and this modulator, the GSAP, which activates the cleavage to form beta amyloid. There's one of the problems in developing inhibitors of gamma secretase to block beta amyloid formation Mm -hmm. is that they cleave some other pathways, most notably notch. And so most of these gamma secretase inhibitors have not only, by inhibiting gamma secretase, not only prevented the formation of the bad substance, beta amyloid, but they've also prevented the formation of vital substances. Fortunately with a GSAP, it only affects, activates only the beta amyloid pathway, not the notch pathway. And that was great because it means that inhibitors of GSAP
3: mm-hmm.
2: can block beta amyloid formation without blocking notch formation. And if you put that in a broader perspective, what, it, what it's telling us is that the GSAP is acting like uh, many... There, let me back up. There are many regulatory proteins known now which regulate proteases. Proteases are very promiscuous. But they require a regulatory protein to say attack this substrate and not this one. Mm-hmm. And that's what the case is with GSAP. It's exactly a classical regulator of protease.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The GSAP regulates the ability of the gamma secretase to cleave this APP CTF to form beta amyloid. Mm-hmm. It does not affect the notch pathway. So now there's a whole new area. It's an react-
1: exciting new area for drug discovery.
2: For, for where you can look at inhibitors of GSAP.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we have made. Uh, compounds which are very potent, selective inhibitors of beta amyloid, mm-hmm. and not of uh, not affecting the notch pathway. And we've made n- knockout mice of GSAP, and they no longer form plaques. They no longer form mm-hmm. these beta... The amount of beta amyloid is greatly reduced. There are no plaques formed in the brain, but there's no toxicity either, mm-hmm. as you can look at... So it's a kind of intestinal pathology to look at mm-hmm. when you inhibit the...
1: To look gamma for, for notch related notch-related... Yeah. Uh,
2: of the notch, uh, NICD, it's called. So this is a nice selective uh, thing, and we're now making compounds which are much more potent uh, inhibitors of the gamma-secretase pathway selectively for the beta-amyloid. Mm-hmm. So I think this is going to be a very potent way to get into exciting new drug development. Mm-hmm. We have compounds which are more potent on the uh, in terms of interacting with GSAP. Oh, I, neg- I neglected to, to, to mention that the in this ternary complex of the GSAP, the gamma secretase and the APP, what happens is that the ATP is required, it causes a conformational change in the GSAP, which enables it to activate the cleavage, and that the cleavage competes with the ATP binding site on the GSAP, and we're just now Identified the residue of the ATP binds mm. to, so we're very excited. Which will about
1: help that. drug discovery even even right, further. Even more. One last discovery I'd like you to talk about before we uh, discuss other subjects is your lab's focus on a protein called P11, and uh, which you've implicated in depression, leading to potential new therapies for that syndrome as well. Could you tell us how your lab came across P11?
2: Yes. <clears throat> uh, it's pretty well established that virtually all well certainly the SSRIs, the ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors but even some of the other antidepressants like the monoamine oxidase inhibitors and the tricyclic antidepressants appear to have their antidepressant effect through increasing s- signaling at serotonin mm-hmm. synapses. And they do this by increasing the amount of serotonin in the synapse and not affecting the postsynaptic serotonin receptor. We wondered if, and in this case this is the work of a pair of spennings and Mark flagellate, mm-hmm. uh, we wondered whether there might be endogenous proteins in the plasma membrane of the serotonin cells which might modulate the serotonin receptor. So yeast, using the yeast-2 hybrid technology, which Mark Flagellet had introduced into our lab, he had done his uh, graduate studies in, at the Pasteur Institute in a laboratory that was one of the major developments of yeast-2 hybrid technology. So when he came here, he started working with Pear on this project, can we, f- using the serotonin receptor, find a binding protein which might regulate its activity? Mm-hmm. And he found this protein, P11. In contrast to the GSAP, which is totally unknown, it was not even in the human genome at the time we found it, the P11 was a well-known protein, but there was no evidence that it was involved in brain function. Mm-hmm. So here he we found this P11 to be a binding protein in the plasma membrane for the serotonin, for certain serotonin receptors, not all. And so then the question was, is this a bio, possible biological relevance? And we found that it co-localized with the... The serotonin receptors or certain of them and then we found most excitingly that the p11 was a chaperone which traffic it caused accumulation of the serotonin receptor in the plasma membrane we still don't know whether it's due to an increased recruitment to the membrane or decreased endocytosis mm-hmm. but that's one of the things we're working on mm-hmm. Now this was terribly exciting because all of the previously known antidepressants worked by increasing serotonergic transmission, by increasing the level of the neurotransmitter serotonin, Mm -hmm. with no effect on the receptor. Mm -hmm. Here we had a protein which did the opposite, it increased the amount of the serotonin receptor in the presence of a fixed amount of the neurotransmitter serotonin. Mm -hmm. So this seemed very exciting and we wondered whether in fact there might be a relationship. We showed in a number of ways, for example, changing the depressive state or an antidepressant state of animals caused a change in the P11 levels. For example, uh, uh, in animal models of uh, depression, Mm -hmm. the level of P11 was way down. Postmortem human brain tissue, people with major depressive disorder had a much lower level of P11 than normal controls. Mm -hmm. Conversely, we can manipulate the state of P11 and get these really dramatic behavioral effects. For example, if we knocked out the P11, the animals had a major depression, as judged by all of these behavioral Mm -hmm. studies. A lot of people who are not familiar with the field say, how can you judge from a mouse's behavior or rat's behavior uh, whether this is a good... Predictive depression in a human. Mm-hmm. The fact is, there's a good correlation, as you know well, Eric, from your own work. There's a good correlation between the ability of different drugs to be clinically effective mm-hmm. and their ability to do these uh, to have these effects on behavior in rodents.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So we knocked out p11 constitutively and got this depressive behavior. Mm-hmm. If we overexpressed P11, the animals behaved as though they'd been given an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. We then, uh, in a, a series of studies with Michael Caplet, who had been an MD PhD student here and now a brain surgeon across the street of Cornell, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we did studies to localize the region of the brain at which this might occur. And we found if you did not the constitutive knockout, but only knocked out the P11 in the nucleus accumbens, a known system for reward and and uh, mood mood uh, regulation, if you knocked out only in that region, you've got a depressed animal. Right. And we then went on to show that within that region, this is the work of Jennifer Warner Schmidt, if you knocked out the P11 only in one cell type in this relatively small region of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, you mimicked The constitutive knockout. We were able to identify a single nerve cell type where this happened.
1: And in fact, it's a minority of cells in this entire region that is mediating this
2: effect. 1% of the cells in a small region of the brain, you remove P11, you have a severe depressive Mm -hmm. phenotype. We were very excited about this. We were able to take constitutively knocked out mice, so there's no P11 anywhere in the brain or body. And put the P11 back into this one cell type, mm-hmm. these uh, interneurons that represent 1% of the cells in the, in the nucleus gums, and totally restore normal activity. Mm-hmm. So, this has been a rather rewarding series of experiments. We now know of P11 enriched cells in several parts of the brain. Interestingly, uh, in, in studies in collaboration with uh, Eric Schmidt, a postdoctoral fellow in Nat mm-hmm. Heinz's laboratory. And Jennifer Werner-Schmidt in our laboratory, uh, we've just found in a paper in, in, that just came out in Cell uh, last week that there's a cell type in the cortex, in layer 5a in the cortex, which is highly enriched in p11. If you knock out the p11 there, you, what you do, you, you, you get the opposite of what you get if you knock out in mm. the nucleus of Cummins. You get, and if you knock it out in the cortex in these layer 5a cells the animals show no depressive phenotype, but they no longer respond to an antidepressant substance with a behavioral change. This is in contrast to the nucleus accumbens, where if you knocked it out in this one cell type, they had a depressive behavior, but they retained the ability to respond to the antidepressant. So one of the things we're doing now is seeing if there's a possible connection between these two cell types. In other words, given antidepressant, it overcomes the damage you did from the knocking out in the nucleus accumbens, mm-hmm. there has to be a, a circuitry that involves a maybe third or fourth or fifth class of neurons, but that's the way we're going with that. Mm-hmm. And so if you think of it, it's quite analogous to some other diseases. Parkinson's disease is it represents the death of dopamine-producing cells. but you treat that disease right now by compensating for the missing dopamine and treating dopamine receptive cells, and this would be quite the same with these n- neurons in the uh, because the Cummins are the Mm -hmm. uh, reason for the depression, but you compensate by uh, increasing the activity of these P11 cells in the cortex. Mm -hmm.
1: So we've had a conversation that spans 50 years of contributions from your lab, and I'd like to turn our attention to address a slightly different question, and that is more the social aspects of science, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and that in addition to all of these Legion contributions that your lab has made over the years, another contribution you've made is to train generations of additional scientists. And I was wondering if you wanted to comment about that aspect of looking back and uh, thinking of the scientists who got their start with you.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to That's One of the things I'm happiest about in my career is that I've had the good fortune to have so many brilliant young people now, many people would say, to people such as yourself and you know a couple of dozen others, uh, what I did for you, <laughs> I trained you to be a great scientist. And you did.
3: <laughs> that,
2: no, I don't think I, that's more credit than I deserve. I think all these brilliant young people realized how important what we were doing was, and they came to the lab because they were brilliant enough to realize how important it was. I've noticed over and over again that it's always the younger people who get the really important Mm -hmm. advances. For example, Mm -hmm. there's several times in my career, despite my experience along this line, where some young person has come along with something, a new way of looking at brain function, I'll say to myself, that can't be right, that doesn't feel right, it doesn't fit into my Mm -hmm. thinking about the brain. And they were right. And I think that's what happened with me. A lot of older people didn't believe in it, but the younger people did. And so they came and studied with me and learned our trade and mm-hmm. went over and did their own brilliant stuff. But I didn't turn them in. I might have helped them be more effective scientists, but they had brilliant minds to begin with, like mm-hmm. you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. But one of the things, I, I still, uh, after all these years of being in the lab, and I think it's been over 30 years that I've worked in your lab, will still go back to things that I learned from you. Not only about how to analyze scientific data, which is also true, but in particular how to work with the younger scientists in my lab, and uh, and get them to be and get them to reach their own potential. You were particularly good at it.
2: Tell me what I did, because
1: I, I don't. It must be I'm a critical enough. ingredient that I have been trying consciously and purposely to identify, and I'm not sure that I've yet identified it. Well, I
2: think in my case it's a problem because. First of all, there's a correlation between the talent of the people and how often they want to talk to me. You'd think it'd be the opposite. The the neediest uh, students and postdocs would come more often. They don't. Mm -hmm. The ones that are most talented would love to come and talk about their work with me. Mm -hmm. So that's one observation which I wouldn't have predicted to be the case. I think the problem is when you have a very talented person, and they want to go down this path, and you think it's better to go down that path. Mm-hmm. Should you let them go down the first path rather than the second path? And I tend to do that, and it's usually wrong, because I've had so much experience that right. you, get, you develop an intuitive sense of what are the more productive av- avenues. But once in a while, they were right, and mm-hmm. it's you know, been led to very exciting stuff. So I don't think one can generalize. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you, you solve solved the problem. I saw
1: no, it, I would yeah. agree, actually. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, It's also made yeah. your lab very dynamic from the point of view, thinking back to what we were talking about earlier, and the resistance of the field of neuroscience to some of your initial discoveries. Your lab has not resisted new discoveries. Your lab has continued to embrace new discoveries, new technologies to a very impressive degree, and thereby remained at the cutting edge.
2: Yeah, but well, maybe I shouldn't have said no, that can't be right. I should have said, I don't think that's right, but let's see whether it's relevant to what we're studying.
1: Yeah. Let's talk also about your early years in science and and what got you uh, started yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I realized when I was your graduate student was how unusual it was for somebody to go to take your path, to go from industry and then having a spectacular career in academia. I've known many people who've done the opposite. And I was wondering if you could take us through that early part of your career. What first prompted you to go to industry and then what led you to go back to academia?
2: All right. I went into industry because I was always excited, since I was a student, with the idea that one might take one's knowledge of basic science to develop drugs, tell people. Um, and it seemed a, a very exciting possible way to go. And then I was asked to become the head of this division of what at the time was Gagi, then they merged and became Sibagagi, mm-hmm. and then they merged it with, no, with uh, Sandoz and became Novartis. Mm-hmm. And so
1: I went. Roughly, when did you go there? Was that late '50s or early '60s?
2: 1959. hmm Yeah. Uh, I actually officially joined them in 1958. I'd spent five postdoctoral years studying in England, mm-hmm. and I went. I joined uh, Geiger in 1958 and was there till '67, but. The first year the laboratories weren't ready, so I worked, went down and worked with Sidney Udenfriend friend at mm. the NIH. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
2: and then I went into the industry, and uh, you know, I was in a pretty senior position for a young person and uh, was head of one of the departments. There were three departments, there was a biochemistry department, they, didn't, they hardly use the term molecular biology then, there was a pharmacology department. A synthetic chemistry department, and then a medical department, mm-hmm. and then there was somebody who was like Primus inter pares amongst us. He kind of mm-hmm. led the thing. But every time I had, a, not every, yeah, just about every time I had a new idea about how to develop some drug, uh, you had to, you couldn't start a program unless the committee agreed, and. Virtually the committee never agreed, Mm -hmm. some of them I did anyhow and they looked very exciting, but I got so frustrated by the time that I left in 1967 that I just said, I think I have a better chance of contributing to drug development in academia than I did here at Geige. Mm -hmm. In fairness the situation is very different now, there are many more exciting opportunities now. Mm -hmm. In those days the synthetic chemists ruled supreme, they were the Mm -hmm. gods. And all they wanted to do in those days was to make chemical modifications to somebody else's patented drug, mm-hmm. so that we could get a drug that would make more money. Mm-hmm. There was no biological thinking at all. And I didn't realize that they would be so uh, obtuse. Now the situation is very different, and usually it's biologists in charge now, and, and in those days, the. When I was there, the biologists were the servants of the chemists, and now it's kind of turned around. Mm-hmm.
1: And then when you made the transition back to academia, you did so through a series of sabbaticals?
2: And no, I had, I had been, uh, the last three years of my five years in England, I was studying at the National Institute for Medical Research, mm-hmm. and there were two guys there named Murdoch Ritchie and Bill Douglas who were both prominent yes pharmacologists. They moved to Einstein about the same time that I'd moved to Gage. I, I really loved England. It was the peak of McCarthyism, and it wasn't so pleasant. And I'm not politically active, but I, I think, and I didn't like to mm-hmm. see the people I knew were being you know, mm-hmm. uh, investigated by the McCarthy Committee. It was kind of people forget how it was really unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed England, and I'm, I'm kind of a non-boastful type. And I and. English tend to be non-boastful, so I f- felt more comfortable there than competing mm-hmm. with the boasters here. So I really loved it there. And, uh, and, uh, but then, the, after Sputnik, money started really going into the US, U.S. science, and it didn't in England. So, for example, I had to, to develop my own fluorometer to develop a very powerful new method mm-hmm. for assaying what were called the intermediate metabolites. So I decided I had to come back to the States for professional reasons. So I worked at uh, at uh, Geige for these eight years and then uh, I decided to leave and I took a job at a place which wasn't built yet on Staten Island, the National- New York State Institute for Mental Retardation. Mm-hmm. I think they've changed the name, mm-hmm. but it wasn't built yet so I had a sabbatical year basically uh, and I spent six months at Albert Einstein and six months at Vanderbilt. Albert Einstein, Murdoch, Ritchie, and I, my old colleague from England, mm-hmm. and I were working.
1: Was Murdoch the chair of pharmacology? No, Al
2: Gilman was the chairman of pharmacology. And it was really probably the best department in the country at the time. And Murdoch and I worked out the mechanism of action of local anesthetics. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was just subject to an interview about how we discovered huh. that. We showed that the local anesthetics crossed the plasma membrane of the axon in the neutralized form, and the acidic, inter, uh, acidic milieu inside the axon made them protonated, and so they they couldn't get out, and they sat in the sodium channel and blocked mm. it. It was just a fun thing. Anyhow, at about the time that I was leaving uh, Geige to go to the Staten Island Institute, uh, Richie and Douglas were asked to be finalists for the chair of pharmacology at Yale,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which Arnold Welsh had had. He was a cancer
3: mm-hmm.
2: chemotherapy guy. And they asked Richie what his conditions were. He said, "If I will accept the chairmanship I can bring Douglas and Green Garden." And Douglas said, I'll accept the chairmanship if I can bring Richie and Green Garden." So at this point, they over me this... Actually, Richie won the...
0: Mm-hmm. the
2: one called Because when Douglas was asked what he would do, he was asked by the then dean what would you do about this dead wood in the department?" Uh, he said, I'll tell you what I would do with them. These is like six professors of chemotherapy. He said, I'd put them on a raft, I'd get in a motorboat, and I'd tow them out to the middle of Long Island sand, and I'd cut the rope, and come <laughs> back to New, York, to New Haven Harbor. And you always wonder why Richard got the chairmanship over him. But I know from the dean that was the reason. It's
1: funny. So. Ha- uh, having had both of them teach me pharmacology, I, I could see Bill Douglas doing that. Can't you see yeah. that? Yeah, that
2: was Bill Douglas.
1: Um, and then so going yeah,
2: that's how I ended up at Yale.
1: So that's how you ended up, uh, and then you moved to... I Rock-
2: almost went a year earlier.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so you moved to Yale in 68.
2: Yeah. You almost think, moved
1: a year earlier?
2: That was a point that was going to be in the psychiatry department. Mm.
1: And so people strongly
2: for me, but one powerful guy opposed to me. He said, no.
1: What does this have to do with psychiatry?
2: Yeah, basically. Yeah. He's a very well-known guy whose name I will not
1: No, but you, proved, b- but you proved yourself correct and them wrong. Him. Wrong. Him wrong. Let me ask you uh, some even earlier questions in your training. Uh, you were born in New York City? Yes. Uh, what high school did you go to?
2: I went to two high schools. I went to, for, excuse me, first I went to Richmond Hill High School.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And after two years, they had started Forest Hills High School. Uh-huh. And then I transferred there.
1: So you grew up in Queens, Forest Hills, Queens. Yes.
2: Well, I spent the first 10 years of my life going up in Brooklyn, then moved to Forest Hills. Okay. And they had very few high schools then. We had to. It was a long, long walk to go to Richmond Hill High School. It's not quite like Abe Lincoln, but it wasn't so good.
1: <laughs> and, there was electricity then.
2: There was electricity. Uh, but then after the two years of Richmond Hill High School, they built the Forest Hills High School, so I went to that one. Mm-hmm. That's a school in which uh, Raymond Simon and Gara Finkel had this hmm. they had this song. When I think back on all that crap I learned in high school, that was Forest Hills High School.
1: <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Wow. Yeah. And then you went from Forest Hills to Hamilton College. Correct. Well, I was spent three years in the Navy and. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, um, what uh, what did you do while you were in the Navy? Well.
2: I volunteered to go into the Navy, I mean, it was, unlike all the wars since, it was a very pretty black and white mm-hmm. issue there, and everybody hated Hitler, and mm-hmm. and so all the kids my age basically, practically volunteered to mm-hmm. go into the war. And in, in the Navy I was sent to this electronic technician school after boot camp. They basically did a kind of filtering for performance ability. Then we went through three of these electronic schools that were more and more complex. They took the top, you know, few mm-hmm. from each school. And at the end of that, I was sent to MIT, where they're developing early warning radar system. Mm-hmm. The reason they were developing it is that they had these kamikaze planes that would fly just 20 feet above the surface of the water. And we couldn't detect them until they were like 20 miles out. And by then, it was too late to get your... Mm-hmm. your airplanes up to shoot them down.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: These are They were torpedo bombers. They mm-hmm. didn't have much flexibility. Was a, a thing carrying a big explosive, and our fighter planes could easily sh- shoot them down. So somebody had the idea of putting a radar, it was very primitive in those days, the early, early, early days of television, a radar system in a plane, and then you could scan the entire thing. This is all then sent by what well, it would be ultra primitive television down to the ship, uh-huh. and I was responsible for the electronics on the ship, as it turned out. And my buddy was responsible for the electronics in the in the plane.
1: It's amazing. It and was pretty exciting.
2: I know I'd I, I have trouble with that responsibility now. I have a whole uh, naval squadron depending on you.
1: Yeah, but and it th- was
2: eighteen year old kid, but but it illustrates. It didn't, at that age, it nothing bother you. You'd, you'd,
1: and it illustrates your uh, quantitative nature and yeah. the um, proclivity you have uh, toward physics and engineering. Uh, did you study that at Hamilton?
2: I majored in physics and mathematics at Hamilton College, mm-hmm. yes.
1: And did you enjoy your college years?
2: Yeah, I, I enjoyed them very much. Well, I was catching up, so I only spent two years at Hamilton. There were a lot of pe- older, older men and kids who took accelerated courses because we lost three years in the war? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, went there when I was 20 and took summer both years. Mm. Or took extra courses and uh, graduated when I was 22.
1: I see. I I think I told you this, but a number of years ago when I was bringing my children on their college interviews, we went to Hamilton and I was thrilled to see in their new science building uh, a display devoted to you and your contributions as a famous alumnus of the college. I'm sure you've seen that.
2: Yes. it w- I was there, and I saw it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and then from Hamilton, you went to get a Ph.D., uh, and I believe you started at Penn, but somehow made your way to uh, Hopkins. Uh, could you tell us how that happened? Yes,
2: well, at that time, the, well, I... S- switched from my interest in physics and mathematics to biophysics, medical physics, and the reason for that was this is like two years after, the, three years after the dropping of the mm-hmm. atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and I thought, I don't want any talent I may have to be used for that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and my roommate in college was a son of two physicians, and they both told me about this, and I was expressing my concern about going to that area, and they were telling me about this emerging field of biophysics. And so I learned about it, I was quite excited about it. And what they were doing is studying the electrical properties of nerve cells, which is where we started at the beginning of this thing. Everything was electricity. Mm-hmm. Old people working on their brain, they were electrophysiologists. There'd be biochemists using the brain for their research, but it was only because of a very rich source of enzymes. They were interested at all mm-hmm. in what was in there. Mm-hmm. So, anyhow. Yeah,
1: so you went to Penn. So I went to
2: Penn, and uh, 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 I got into biophysics. There were two such departments in the country. One was doing radioisotope tracing at at Berkeley, Mm -hmm. and the other was uh, the biophysics department at Penn, which was chaired by a guy named Detlev Bronk, Uh who then moved one semester after I got there to Johns Hopkins to be president. And he took with him one of the people, a guy named Keffer Hartline, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on vision. He became the chairman of the department. And then they moved a few of us with them from Penn to Hopkins. So I spent the last four and a half years of my graduate studies at Hopkins.
1: And your PhD then was in uh, biophysics? Biophysics,
2: yeah. I was Mm -hmm. was studying the properties of nerve cells as they degenerate. Mm
1: -hmm. And then you mentioned earlier that you then uh, spent a few years in England as a postdoc. Uh, With whom did you work there?
2: I worked with three people. One was a man named Henry McElwain. He's best known for developing the McElwain chopper,
1: but he also this is a brain slicer where that uh, was like a you know a deli slicer, but to cut brains in thin slices.
2: And he made a couple of other significant contributions, mostly mythological. And then from there, I went to University of Cambridge or Cambridge University, where I worked with a guy named E. C. Slater. Mm -hmm. Right after I got there, he moved. Amsterdam, so I spent a good part of that second year abroad working in Amsterdam
3: mm-hmm.
2: on oxidative phosphorylation,
3: mm.
2: uh, which is his specialty. I wanted, to, I wanted to learn more biochemistry because my degree had been almost exclusively in electrophysiology.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then after that I moved to the National Institute for Medical Research. The reason for that is I wanted a department that had equipment facilities to do both biochemical and electrophysiological studies, there was no place.
1: very unusual in those days for the, the brain. The only
2: place there was was a few pharmacology laboratories, mm-hmm. which had bio, some biochemical mm-hmm. potency. And that was, the head of that group was a man named Wilhelm Feldberg,
3: mm-hmm.
2: who was a very, very important person in the history of mm-hmm. pharmacology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Henry Dale were kind of the giants in neuropharmacology at that time in, in England.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's finish. If uh, if you would just to give us a perspective of uh, what what you see moving forward, uh, what you see in terms of how some of the st- many discoveries that your lab has made over the last several decades uh, eventually influencing medicine. You alluded to some interest today actually directly uh, work done directly by your lab in the area of Alzheimer's disease and depression. Uh, More broadly many of us uh, talk now about the difficulty that the field has had in introducing new medications for neurologic and psychiatric diseases. For
2: half a century there have been no new drugs.
1: Right. So I was wondering what your perspective is on that.
2: Well it's clear and you know this very well Eric, the reason why the same old drugs keep appearing is because they figured out to some extent how these drugs Mm were. And so they keep using the same targets to develop better drugs. And There's been substantial success, less toxicity, more rapid Mm -hmm. action, longer onset, longer uh, uh, duration of action, and so on. But basically nothing important conceptually. Now that we've learned all these things about signaling pathways, I plan to... uh, spend uh, whatever number of years I have left working Mm -hmm. trying to uh, do what's called today translation research to to understand how our knowledge of these signaling pathways can contribute to understanding diseases and the drugs that treat those diseases.
1: Right, and you gave us some examples earlier uh, in Alzheimer's disease and depression, but also more broadly as yeah. you mentioned, in Parkinson's disease and schizophrenia. Well, another, I'm sorry.
2: An- another example is Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nat Hines and I, uh, with an extremely talented uh, a postdoctoral fellow in our laboratory, Miriam Heyman, in my laboratory, developed this trap technology where it's now possible to look at all of the proteins being expressed in every individual nerve cell type in the brain, uh, the transcriptome, if you will, and what we're doing with it now is one example in the case of Parkinson's. It's known that in Parkinson's disease, the, well, there were two types of dopamine-producing nerve cells, one group in the substantia nigra and another group in the ventral tegmental area, which are anatomically very close to each mm-hmm. other. And we're now analyzing all the proteins expressed in the two types of nerve cells, mm-hmm. uh, and we're finding large numbers of differences between them. And why this is exciting and potentially of great therapeutic interest is we're hoping that we can find cells in the uh, substantia naga that are very abundant there, and they identify those and then put them into VTA cells in new mice and show that you can cause the death of those mice, uh, of the dopamine cells Cells. in those mice. Mm -hmm. And conversely, and much more practically important, take proteins which are very abundant in the VTA and make mice where you put them into the susceptible cells in the nigra Mm -hmm. and see if we can protect those uh, cells from neurodegeneration. Mm -hmm. And that, that technique is an example of how these modern molecular biology techniques can be enormously helpful in understanding how the brain
1: works. It really transformed the field of neuroscience.
0: You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio for 80 years Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Anna Rasquat paz Thanks for listening.